Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 8, Flying for a Rogue Airline, Part 1. ALPA's first president, Dave Banke, was determined that there should be no second-class citizen in the ranks of airline pilots. He understood there was bound to be some expression of chauvinistic pride, that natural rivalries would exist among different airlines and their pilots. Nevertheless, Banky could get feisty when it came to competitive flying. Pilots of one airline recklessly boasting that they could fly in weather too severe for pilots of other airlines. From the very first issue of the Airline Pilot, which appeared in newspaper format in April 1932, Banky warned his fellow pilots, saying, Faced with the fear of losing his job, even the pilot who knows better will engage in cutthroat flying and fly on the spirit of foolish rivalry. This present reckless competition is setting a dangerous standard. The tougher you fly, the tougher your employer is going to expect you to fly. Modern business may demand a 100% schedule, but this is commerce, not war. The smart pilot knows when to quit, and he doesn't take pride in flying over or through harsher weather than his brother pilots. As pilots, we are no longer individuals. We are a group, and as such, we must think collectively and work collectively. Banky's remarks struck a responsive chord, particularly among the pilots of the smaller airlines. W.J. Fry of Pacific Seaboard Airlines, a forerunner of Delta Airlines, noted that pilots would accomplish a great deal more and have a finer and stronger organization in ALPA if each pilot will work with and help other pilots, rather than create a lot of petty jealousy among the group. But in a country dominated by marketplace considerations, the bottom line would always be salaries. The pilot who worked for substandard wages on a small airline was in fact a second-class citizen economically, and everyone knew it. That's why Banky resolved that the small airlines should pay the same salaries as the large ones. That was easier said than done. ALPA's battle to equalize pilot salaries began in an obscure confrontation on an obscure airline. Forget for a moment today's fast-paced world of jet equipment and crowded airspace and put yourself in another time and place. Imagine yourself in 1934, working for an airline called Long & Harmon, flying mail and an occasional passenger through the virtually empty skies between Brownsville and Amarillo, Texas, in a single-engine Stinson Reliant. Put yourself in a place of Long & Harmon's pilots, whose names nobody remembers today, and whose forgotten ordeal appears in no history book. After hearing their story, perhaps you'll understand why every pilot working today owes them something, particularly those who work for the smaller airlines. When President Franklin D. Roosevelt announced his intention to return the airmail to private contractors, 
Dave Banky knew there was bound to be trouble with the undercapitalized little airlines, fixed-based operators, and crop-dusting outfits, which were submitting bids in competition with the majors. The nation's small operators, led by the Braniff brothers in Texas, had been screaming since 1930 that they've been frozen out by Hoover, the Republicans, and the big corporations. They charged fraud and collusion, arguing that the little man had been victimized by rigged bidding. The alleged villains, Hoover and his postmaster general Walter Brown, had been trying to create an airline system with passenger-carrying capability. They knew that the small operators would be content merely flying the mail in the small aircraft and would never risk their limited capital to purchase the new trimotor aircraft that were becoming available in the late 1920s. The small fry had no stomach for competing with the railroads for passengers. Hoover and Brown reasoned that without the modern equipment that passenger service required, the small operators would never get off the government dole. To force the shoestring operators into upgrading their equipment, Brown required all bidders for mail contracts in 1930 to either meet certain minimum specifications or be forced out of business. Because of these requirements, the small operators denounced the bidding session of 1930 as a spoils conference. Actually, it was no such thing. The small fry had the same opportunity as the big fellows. They just didn't have the money to buy the new multi-engine aircraft that Brown demanded. Admittedly, there was an element of ruthlessness in the way he proceeded, but it was not illegal. Brown succeeded in creating the genesis of a regulated, integrated airline system, a system that FDR would eventually copy. Dave Banky and Alpa were in complete agreement with the policies of Hoover and Brown. Banky disliked most small operators because they were almost impossible to organize and quick to fire any pilot who so much as flirted with the idea of unionization. Also, it angered Banky that most of the small airlines were owned by men who didn't work every day as pilots, but who nevertheless came to Washington to speak for pilots during congressional hearings. When the Democrats took office in March 1933, the small operators expected to have their day. The Braniff brothers, it was said, had ensured a favorable hearing from the new administration by liberally contributing to certain powerful Democrats. Delta's Collett Woolman was playing the same game. Banky won FDR's gratitude by publicly supporting him. Privately, however, Banky supported the old operators, doing everything he could to get their contracts restored. The last thing he wanted was for small-time operators to get a new foothold in the industry. It proved impossible to keep all the small operators out of business when the new contracts were awarded in April 1934. At high noon, on an unseasonably warm day, more than 150 people crowded into the superintendent of the airmail's office to see the bids opened. Among those present were heavyweights like Paul Braniff, Pat Patterson of United, and Lester Seymour of American Airways. 
They were bidding for a one-year contract under an interim law that would apply while Congress was in the process of writing permanent legislation, eventually known as the Airmail Act of 1935. The new bids were stated in terms of a flat amount of money per mile over each route. The tension in the room, heightened by the full press coverage and battery of photographers, was largely due to the knowledge that of the 45 bidders, only half would be successful. Banky's worst fears materialized when the final bids were posted. The major airlines suffered severe losses to the small operators, whose bids were unrealistically low. The major operators had to face the tough decision either to compete with the small fry by also submitting unrealistically low bids, or to stand by while the small operators again filled the nation's airways with open cockpit biplanes. The majors had no choice. They had to retain control of some of their old routes, even if it meant accepting substantial losses in the short run. But they dared not underbid the small operators on every route. That could lead to bankruptcy. As a result of this dilemma, the small operators were able to pick off several choice routes. When private contractors once again began flying the nation's airmail on May 20, 1934, some of them had new, unfamiliar names like Braniff, Hanford Tri-State, Kohler, and Long and Harmon. At an absurdly low 19 and three-quarter cents per mile, Long and Harmon was the lowest bidder for the 1,125-mile route from Brownsville to Amarillo. American, which had to reserve its low bids for more crucial routes, was the high bidder at a realistic 39 and a half cents per mile, while Braniff lost out with a bid of 20 cents per mile. Long and Harmon's winning bid came as a nasty surprise to the Braniff brothers, who regarded Texas as their private turf, and a strong suspicion persists among old-timers that Bill Long somehow got inside information on Braniff's bid and then cagily slid under it with the idea of eventually selling out to either Braniff or American. But Long had to first prove to the post office that he could actually serve the route during a probationary period ending August 31, 1934. He was in an excellent position to do it. Having learned to fly in World War I, Long had seen some combat and then came home to Dallas where he dabbled in the aviation business. His largest enterprise was a Dallas flying school that employed over 100 people, including 40 pilots. It was from his flying school that he intended to staff his airline, which at the time of his successful bid existed only on paper. He had already teamed up with H.E. Harmon, a restaurateur who had run a small airline in Nebraska. Harmon would serve as general manager of the new airline, which would consist of three divisions. Amarillo, Dallas, with stops at Wichita Falls and Fort Worth, Dallas-Brownsville via Fort Worth, Waco, Austin, San Antonio, and Corpus Christi, and Dallas-Galveston via Fort Worth, Waco, and Houston. The post office agreed to pay the airline $443.88 per day for serving these routes, 
requiring a round trip on each division daily, in one of Long and Harmon's five Stinson Reliance, or in the six-passenger single-engine Travel Air 6000 that the airline planned to hold in reserve. To fulfill their contract, Long and Harmon's planes had to fly 2,250 miles every day. Experienced airmen shook their heads at Long and Harmon's folly. They knew that no one could make a profit flying so far for so little money without supplementing the airmail subsidy with passenger revenues. They also knew that successful passenger operations required modern, multi-engine equipment, of which Long and Harmon had none. Within a month of beginning operations, Long and Harmon realized exactly what they were up against. The story goes that one day, Long started tallying up his receipts, which he carried around in his hip pocket, and determined he would soon go broke unless he got passenger service set up quickly. Harmon disagreed and a violent argument ensued, which Long won in a fistfight. After Harmon agreed to the purchase of a used Ford trimotor, the little airline began aggressively advertising its new passenger service in Texas newspapers. For a brief period, things improved. Long and Harmon lured 391 paying customers into the air in June and July and began to think that they just might succeed in the airline business after all. Had it not been for Banky and his feisty union, Long and Harmon might be as familiar of a name today as Delta or TWA. But it was not meant to be, because when Long and Harmon got into multi-engine equipment, they set in motion a series of events that eventually brought them down. The problem was that none of their pilots were Ford qualified. Even though there was a major depression in the country, the pool of available tri-motor qualified pilots was fairly small. But Long and Harmon found three pilots who were Ford qualified. They were the crucial ingredient in the airline's successful passenger operation. The pilots took their jobs in good faith, assuming that Long and his chief pilot were honorable men. A handshake was contract enough for them in that simpler, more trusting day. At the end of June, when they received their first paychecks, they realized that the figures were far too low. Long and Harmon ignored their complaints, so the three pilots appealed to Banky and Alpa in faraway Chicago. Because of Alpa's steadfast support of FDR during the airmail crisis, the president subsequently showed his gratitude by insisting that the temporary mail contractors pay their pilots the formula specified in Decision 83 of the National Labor Board. Remember Decision 83, which required airlines to compensate their pilots based both on the mileage and the time they flew? This formula guaranteed pilots a share in increased productivity of the equipment they flew. In short, a pilot flying Long and Harmon's Ford Trimotor might not work any more hours than one flying a Stinson Reliant, but the law required that he be paid more because the Ford flew faster. Long and Harmon refused to comply. Admittedly, the verbal agreement under which the three pilots went to work was vague, but the law was the law, and they expected their employer to honor it. When Long heard that his three Ford pilots had asked Alpa for help, 
he exploded with anger, denouncing unions in general and government bureaucrats in particular. He also boasted that he could, as he put it, move Washington by contacting the right man. Long informed Morris Kay, who was acting as the pilot's spokesman, that he already had a fix worked out. Alpa could not help them, Long told his pilots, so they might as well just forget about it. Kay was one of the three Long and Harmon strikers, and recalled years later, although he wasn't an Alpa member at the time, he and the two other pilots would not work, despite the tough job market during the Depression, because of the airline's violation of the law. The only problem was, how could Alpa get the government to enforce it? The National Labor Board could only enforce its edicts through the courts, which was a lengthy, uncertain, and expensive process. The post office, on the other hand, had no way of enforcing the law other than the outright cancellation of Long and Harmon's mail contract. This alternative was obviously unsatisfactory, as it would result in putting the pilots out of work. Then Long and Harmon solved Banky's dilemma. To find out how, listen to part two. Thank you for listening. This has been the first part of Chapter 8 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2019. All rights reserved.